everybody. Oh, it is that time of your week. You've waited, you've anticipated, and it's here. Breaking Cafe with Badger and Barry, the two, no, not two, three best friends that you didn't know you have. And Barry, why is this a special episode? This would be the episode, Jeff, where we're giving away money to all of our listeners, correct? That was last week. Oh, uh, if you didn't listen, you missed out on the big cash giveaway. Damn. Now, besides everything else that we're going to get to in a second, because we do have a jam-packed episode and we've got lots of stuff to talk about. But sweet man, if you could join us. Our very own Lou Kippelman, you know, very recently celebrating the big 5-0. Oh. That's a significant event. And Lou, I will say, you know, uh, Barry and I, we extended our, our birthday greetings last week, but we did not come through like some of your friends came through. You had a nice cameo video sent to you, didn't you, Lewis? Indeed, I did. And would you like to honor the gentleman that, in fact, paid for that, uh, you know, cameo that someone sent you? Yeah, it was a group effort from uh, a few of my longest tenured friends. A couple of friends I've known since nursery school, my boys, uh, Josh, Dan, Brian, and Mitch, they cast about on Cameo, and their knowledge base of wrestling, uh, not that deep. But after I got the gift, they said, well, we're looking at other wrestlers, too. They brought up Jake Roberts, and I'm like, uh, no, no. <laughs> he could drink his own piss on his own time <laughs> and not have to send it to me. But no, they dug deep and they got a, a great one for me. Uh, Mick Foley. The former WWE champion. So that's a pretty good get, I would say. I say so too. And you know Mick is going to be a very creative and generous performer. And he did not disappoint in that regard. You got a song. Yes. I never knew that mankind was a crooner, but now I know, and a lot of us will know, too. Yes, Mankind uh, gave me a little uh, birthday song to the tune of My Way. So you actually got a two-for-one because you had an appearance by Mick Foley, but then his friend Mankind also appeared. Yeah, Mankind did a run-in. No Cactus Jack, though. What's up with that? Yeah, I don't know. No Dude Love, Barry. No Dude Love, exactly. I think Dude Love was on the roof. Am I missing any any of his characters that didn't show? <laughs> no, no. Well, no, Mister Socko. But that's hey. true. So, so uh, that takes care of the cameo, which was very cool. And Lou posted it on his own uh, Facebook page. You should check it out. However, Lou, there have been some allegations, some innuendo, some uh, suppositions. I'm trying to think of adjectives here. That there may have been some drinking involved in Mister Kippelman's 50th birthday. Please confirm or deny. Oh, I can woozily confirm. Yeah, and the thing is, turning 50, I learned that, you know, I'm a cheap date, and I'm a lot less resilient than I was in my, my salad days. Uh, my 50th birthday went out to a nice Moroccan restaurant in San Francisco. Look at you, huh? Moroccan food. Yeah, and so I, I nursed a, a bourbon-based cocktail through the meal, and then for dessert, they had a... A hot cocoa-based uh, cocktail with mezcal and, I want to say, a couple of varieties of brandy and whatnot. I can't imagine why uh, you might have uh, 
uh, needing a little bit of the hair of the dog that bit you when you're mixing the liquors like that. Barry, Barry, are you a fan of mixing liquor? I'll tell you what, Mezcal, I'll tell you a great story about. Well, it's not a great story. It's almost. <laughs> so, uh, Joe Christie, take, you got to take note on this one. Oh, it's Last a time shitting I, story. It's a shitting story. Well, exactly. The, the, <laughs> the, the, uh, the end of the story has already been told, but it, it would have been 1985. Last time I drank Mezcal, and uh, Jeff, have you ever drank Mezcal? I have not. Oh, oh I got to tell you, if I, I would rather, I, I'd rather just get hit by a car at this stage. I, uh, <laughs> we drank Mezcal, and it was... Uh, For the people that aren't Dave Flaherty, yes. explain to the uninitiated what Mezcal is. So Mezcal is a, uh, it's a Mexican uh, beverage, and I, I had mistakenly thought it was tequila or something similar. Mezcal apparently is where the worm lives. Yeah, Scott and Glenn, it, urban cowboy, that's all Exactly, I which I think is an urban myth. If you eat the worm, you'll hallucinate. Well, I ate the you worm. You get a vision, I, I thought it was. I didn't get any vision. I didn't get anything. What I did do, Jeff, Besides get a raging case of the crappers that lasted for four days is uh, exactly. I burped up Mezcal for the next four days as well. In the burps of Mezcal, Jeff, imagine uh, strong alcohol mixed with burnt wood. (laughs) That's a nice combo. Oh, Arguably uh, the one of the, and I never drank mezcal again. I got to say the chocolate sounds really good though. And Lou did say yeah. bourbon. Lou, are you are you currently aware that bourbon is the hottest trend in alcoholic beverages currently when it comes to liquor? Oh, you bet your Pappy Van Winkle. I am. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh my. Yes. Yeah, and I didn't learn my lesson the next day when I had uh, dinner with my family and friends, and I got. Oh, let's see. I uh, got a couple of cans of beer in me and some Lou doubling down, Barry. Wine and uh champagne and Well Jeff is still Moscato. a kid, of course. Yeah. yeah. Gee. So so d- when you had the mezcal the night before, did you in fact eat the worm? Uh no worm was to be had. Ah. Alas. Yeah, that or it was just covered up with a fine layer of whipped cream in that cocktail. So Barry, what Lou's saying is the worm on his birthday night did not make an appearance. <clears throat> oh, <laughs> see what I did there. So. No, it was, yes, it was a uh, hibernation season. <laughs> no, I went through the weekend doing the proverbial Barry Wyndham's dead man walk. Ah, so, I see. Yes. Yeah. But well, I'm glad you had a, uh, a happy. How many years are you married? This year we'll have been together twenty years, and in June it'll be uh, married for sixteen years. Wow. Now, do you, do you count how many of those years have been happy? Uh, well, you know, I just throw yeah. them all in. Yeah. 20 years together, 16 married, uh, 10 happy. That, that's the way, you know, I like to put it. Uh, but uh, So, well, Lou, we're happy that you had a great birthday, uh, got to imbibe in a little bit of alcohol. Uh, sorry that you didn't get to, uh, you know, take the worm down and, uh, you know, have a vision like Scott Glenn, an urban cowboy, <laughs> at damn West Hightower. Uh, he escaped from prison, sissy. Uh, if you know the movie, Barry, of course, you know the uh, the reference oh, yeah. I'm making there. So, but again, birthday, happy greetings, Lou. Uh, welcome to your 50s, and uh, we'll see where it goes from here. Now, on the rest of it's a, episode 227, Barry, we are going to be offering up a number of different items for the listeners, including a look at not one, not two, three 
new shows out there available to you to check out that either Barry, myself, or both of us will highly recommend. We are going to go, Barry, we haven't been to Madison Square Garden for a while. We're going to August 28th, 1978, Bob Backlund, the WWF champion, taking on the challenge. Barry, I don't know. Have we ever done an Ivan Koloff singles match? I want to say we have because it, there's no way after four and a half years of reviewing matches that Koloff didn't make it into one. I, I can't stay off the top of my head, but logically, I would think we absolutely would have had to have, right? Well, and I will only say this was 1978. So uh, while he may have been Uncle Ivan, uh, nephew Nikita had not yet emigrated to the United States. So this was when Ivan was still the the Russian bear in all his full Russian glory. And we're going to talk about that. Can't wait to get there. couple things to address before we get to the match of the week, though, Barry. Barry, uh, first of all, I want to mention for the folks, if you hadn't had a chance uh, to check it out yet, our Patreon episode uh, oh, yeah. that was uh, released recently about the Murdoch family murders in uh, Hampton, South Carolina. Special guest appearance by my cousin Lydia Cook on the ground there in Hampton, South Carolina, getting us the news flash. Lydia uh, Barry reaching out to me Um uh, Every couple of days with, oh, here's the latest update on what's going. She is into that story. I hope you folks will avail yourself uh, of that $5, which is basically a cup of coffee. You know, skip going to Starbucks. Uh, skip going to the uh, the, the QT, the 7-Eleven, and whatever. And, and put your hard-earned $5 down and listen to this great story uh, about uh, a it's currently unsolved, although they kind of have a good suspicion of who did it. Plus, we offer up our choices for the best Steven Spielberg movies. But how else? What better way to spend your your five dollars, Barry? What do you think? Absolutely. When you say a cup of coffee at Starbucks, that's if you're getting plain coffee. That's with- true. Think of it that way, people. Yeah, if you if you're going in for some like Tai Chi, I don't know what that shit's called, some latte with foamy milk and uh, espresso shots and all that, that could literally cost you between eight and ten dollars. So uh, this is a great deal. But I'm again, the coincidence of Jeff having family where these incredible stories are coming out of, and and we discussed this, but I first heard about this story in reading uh, the story on the New York Post, and then they followed it, and it just it reeks of. Uh, it's like an episode of like in, in, in the heat of the night, you know, I expect to yeah. see Carol O'Connor and uh, Howard Rollins showing up because it's it's small town corruption appears on every level. And it's just it's a fascinating story. And that Spielberg segment, too, that may have been one of my favorite segments of all time, Jeff. You got that going for. So so I'm just going to put it this way. I'm talking to you out there. Yeah, you that person that's in the car. You've already placed your order at Starbucks at the window, and now you're pulling up and you're getting ready for them to hand you the coffee. You're going to hand them your eight or ten dollars, as Barry said. You know what I want you to do? I want you to go, no, no. Hey, you at the window at Starbucks. No, we're not going to give you our money. I'm giving my money to Bowdrin, Barry and Lou. Boom. Five bucks a month. Yes. When you break it down, Jeff, we're looking at essentially over a weekly basis, a dollar forty, dollar forty-two per week for your favorite podcasters, the three best friends you didn't know you had. 
Jeff, I want to provide an update for you on a story that we covered a couple of weeks back, and I think you're going to like this. So this past weekend, after much prodding from the young lady who I am currently dating, who is uh, pasta stories. Here we go. Pasta stories coming up. She's been asking me for weeks. When do I get to hear your podcast and whether it's. Yeah, exactly. So you get it. I don't have to go into that. And I think everybody listening gets it. And I'm finally, she looked at me and said, I'm not really sure why you're avoiding this. And uh, I could avoid no longer, Jeff. So I pulled out an episode and it was one of the recent episodes and it was the Shmata episode. And I let her listen to the beginning of it. And she had a big smile on her face. And I said, but if you want the true feeling of what this podcast is, you need to hear the rant. This was also the rant as going with Hilton Honors. So I, uh, (laughs) exactly. So she was sitting at at her uh, coffee table, having, of course, a cup of coffee, non-Starbucks. I believe this was a a pod, like a Keurig pod. So probably 50 cent cup of coffee. And I put it on for, and of course we start out very gentle and we start to get uh, a little angry and her voices are raising and she sat there and I could watch the look on her face as she was enjoying her coffee to putting the coffee on the table. And then she started doing something that was very telling as we were both of us, motherfucker, fuck this, fuck you, Hilton, all this. She starts running her finger around the outside rim in a circular motion around the coffee cup, which just told me, wow, she has a lot of thoughts right here. So she's she's giving me a look, not saying a word, but giving me the look and the eyes are, uh, you know, I, I think there's one about, you know, go fuck yourself that and the eyes get extremely wide. And uh, when it was over, I was like, how was that? And she goes, so who was that? <laughs> Just like that. And I said, well, that was that was my partner and myself. That was Jeff and myself. And she goes, I've never heard you speak like that. And I was like, well, we get worked up once in a while. We will. The reason I'm bringing this up also is someone reached out to me over the last couple of weeks, and it was somebody who was once in our Facebook group, who was somebody we would have considered a brother shipper. We had to remove this individual because, you know, quite frankly, he's a dickhead. But uh, with that, he explained that when the primary card holder dies, apparently this individual had worked in a car in a, a call center for credit cards. I, if I'm remembering this correctly, and maybe I'm not, and I'm sure if I'm not said dickhead will reach out and correct me as he does every single week, but in a very aggressive tone as well, I should say, but he basically said that if the primary card holder on a credit card passes away, they cancel the account. And so even if there are additional card holders, a spouse, children, et cetera, they will go ahead and cancel the account. My contention as I was being, and I didn't get into an argument or anything, or even a discussion regarding this, but what it basically said to me is that that's really a horrible practice. What they should do is that, and it, this, I should say, this, if the information that I was told is correct, first off, I have no idea if it is that they should reach out to the the surviving spouse and say, we're very sorry to hear, you know, it'd be very nice. We At can, a bare minimum. Yeah, you, we've do. been taking your money for years, your interest charges, et cetera. We've and even been, though you're the one who writes the checks that pay 
your yes. monthly fees, you know, because my dad never once wrote a check to Hillary. There you go. You know, or on that card. It was always my mom who was the one. And as I said, they're old schoolers. They, they still, my mom still writes the checks out every month. She doesn't go online to pay it. So, uh, yeah. And that's a really important uh, item that you just brought up because much like that, when I was legally betrothed, I had. Back in the day. Back in the day in my youth, Jeff, I had credit cards in my name. I opened up the account and then my ex, I would get her a card and then she would pay the bills at the end of the month. So I, I didn't have, you know, I, I, I only learned to pay bills once again when I moved out over a year ago. Other than that, I had no idea. But again, what he said was they'll cancel the account. My contention, and I say this to you, again, I didn't get into a discussion about this, is that I understand that policy, but slightly amended, you should reach out to anybody else, the surviving spouse or children, whatever it is, any other name on the account and say that we're very sorry to hear of the passing of so-and-so. With that, we are closing this account based off of our terms. But I think the big thing here, let alone the fact that your mother had to find out at a Publix that she was going to pay that the card had been canceled, that's bad. I mean, that, that, that's a horrible business practice. Secondly, the points. The, the points not being transferable is really completely unacceptable. And that's where I would have, because as a spouse, your mother was right. Your, your father wasn't taking trips off on his own. Of course not. Your mother was right there with them. They should immediately restore those points. Has there been an update from your side that you're aware of? I've not. I, I do know that there were ongoing negotiations, Barry. But, you know, to me, let me just say the whole idea of oh yeah you can uh you can reapply and uh you know as barry said removal of the uh the card the account whatever uh because the primary card holder the first name on the account has uh has died and so we're gonna immediately all and let me just tell you <laughs> in case i didn't make this clear this is not like my parents had like 500 points i mean they had like I think over a hundred thousands of points. Okay. They had a lot of effing points and for them to remove it and say, Oh, sorry about that. That's essentially money going into Hilton's pockets because it's, you know, when my mom said, my mom wanted to go to a hotel. Now all of a sudden, uh, instead of having to basically give them the hotel room for quote unquote for free, even though they earn those points, uh, now they've taken those points away. I think at very best, it smells a little shady, quite frankly, of Hilton to do that. Well, so let me bring up that point, too. So as a business decision— I don't know if shady can smell, but something smells about it. Shady can smell. Okay. Shady definitely smells. With that, as a business decision, by taking away those points— and I don't, again, I don't, I, I don't know the exact number, and I don't know how that translates into free rooms, etc., but let's hypothetically say that you had enough points for two free hotel rooms, right? Sure. What the fuck is that to Hilton? You've got a hotel yeah. that, that could be 60% empty. You've got two free rooms here. Why not just give somebody these points? Because what it's going to do, it's if this was me, it would ensure that I'm never staying at a Hilton property again, which is probably a loss of thousands of dollars, which in, in return is a much bigger loss than you giving me two fucking free rooms that you weren't going to sell anyways. And I will say, as I talked about that other message that I got, Jeff, any guesses on who that was? <laughs> I exactly. I have an idea. <laughs> yes, you do. With the laugh. Did I he have an know. island named after him, Barry? 
he has an island named after him. And uh, yes, and there's other things I could say. But with that, I got a message from a friend in Pittsburgh. Uh, first off, a friend who has recently had a baby. So congratulations to my friend, JP. Oh, I thought uh, you were going to say Stephen Javorski had a baby. Was no, like, no. Congrats, Javorski. Javorski. Yeah, yeah. He's too busy drinking and watching Impact and cranking off. He ain't, <laughs> he ain't having a baby. Yeah, but. With that, our friend JP, who is a very loyal brother shipper, though you don't see him every day in the group, primarily because he just had a baby, but he sent me a message and and he he actually, which I thought was really funny, was I'm prepared to go full out on this ban of Hilton properties if nothing is rectified. Like he Thank was, you, JP. Appreciate he it. He was hundred percent. And I said, you know, you, you we're not we're not calling for a, a full deal of a boycott at this stage. We may, we may end up uh, getting there. We, we'll keep everybody apprised. We we want these points. We want first off, we want an apology that and I I don't want to ask your mother's age. That would be impolite. But that a woman who was married for was it sixty something years, Jeff, or seventy? Seventy. Seventy years, the woman was married, and she has to go to Publix to buy her groceries, and is told the credit card is canceled. First off, she deserves an apology. Secondly, those points need to be restored to her account for goodwill. That's what I would demand from Hilton. Well, as we speak, I am sending a message to my sister to find out if Mom ever got her points back. And while we are recording. We will see if we find the answer to that question. So, Barry, as we move along, before we get to our match of the week, let me just ask you this, Barry. Have you ever had the occasion to go out to lunch at a restaurant? You go to a restaurant that does not have, uh, quote unquote, servers. You go, you place your order. This is what happened to me in the uh, sainted Mrs. Bowdern. We went to a, an Italian place, uh, okay. you know, get a couple slices of pizza and uh, so we go there, we place our order at the counter, uh, you know, and we're just two slices of pizza and something to drink, right? And so uh, the guy has, oh, there's the screen, uh, you know, because we're playing with, with the uh, the credit card, and uh, you sign it, and then there's the spot, and this is where I wanted to get your uh, feedback on this, Barry, where it says tip. The choices are no tip, 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever, and because we hadn't dealt with a server at the table. I'm getting ready to press no tip. Mrs. Baldron, much nicer person than me, goes, no, 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 no. You need to give him something. You, need, you know, I'm like, we didn't have a server. This is just a guy standing behind the counter. And she goes, oh, yeah, you need to give him something. So, uh, you know, maybe we gave him 15% or something. So my question to you, as the people out there listening are going, what a cheap son of a bitch that fucking Baldron is. Uh, no, that's not the, that's obvious. But my question to you, as someone who has been both a manager, check, and server, <laughs> check, in the restaurant industry, Barry, what do you think of this practice? Chris Spiker, that was for you, by the way, because he loves when you do that, Jeff. Because <laughs> he'll say to me in private conversation all the time, was this when you were a manager or server? I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> so, yes. So you've created a monster there, much like I did with the shit stories. So this happened to me two weeks ago today as we're recording at Panera and I went to Panera and the young lady behind the counter who was not friendly, who clearly did not want to be working at Panera, who may have been a deaf mute for all I know, because there was no, please, thank you, come back or anything like that. Just stood there may not even have been real Jeff. She may have been some sort of mannequin or blow up doll. And it comes up on experience of blow up dolls. Huh, bear. Well, you know, we all have our thing. Absolutely. So 
there is a Panera now doing that as well, where Panera, because somebody's taking your order, Panera will now say, would you like to tip? Uh, and then it gives you the, you know, 15, 20, 25% options to do it. I did it. And then Zoe looked at me. I was with the lovely Zoe and Zoe said, why would you tip? All she did was ring up an order. And then I said, I have a feeling the tips are going to be split amongst everybody that's back there. So I'm not a fan of it, first off. And this is a new thing that, for the most part, has uh, really just kind of uh, exploded during the COVID situation uh, that we've been in, where uh, I guess it's something that maybe they're using to placate the help, the hired help that comes in. And they're like, we'll pay you $15 an hour, but we're also going to encourage people to tip you. And maybe that's attractive to people. My issue with it is that I don't think if somebody is working a counter and it's full service, they're doing their job, but it's the same job that they've been doing, you know, for the last 40 years, 50 years. We didn't tip people behind the counter because they were making a wage with that. And, and again, look. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying I'm not really a huge fan, but there are times where if I were to go somewhere and the person behind the counter, look, if I went to In-N-Out where it's always a great experience to somebody behind the counter, even Chick-fil-A where you know it's great, you know, throw in a couple bucks, no big deal, right? The issue I have, as I do with a lot of big corporations in this country, is that a lot of the executives for a company like Panera are making six figures per year. And they live in it's it's, you know, I don't want to get on a tangent, uh, which I'll avoid that. I was going to say something and I'm not. So I cut myself off right there. But with that, there are a lot of these executives and these powerhouses that run these companies that are making six figures a year. They've got points. They have stock options, et cetera. A lot of the help for years has been minimum wage. And, and I think a lot of the pushback over the last couple of years was really the fact that a lot of these big corporations and people running a lot of these restaurants and quick serve facilities treated their staff like shit. And then it came back to bite them in the ass because, uh, you know, during COVID, nobody could get help and we're still seeing all these struggles that are occurring. But when you have people that are working at a, at a property and uh, let's say a busboy, let's say, let, let's take a typical restaurant. And if a busboy is making somewhere along the lines of $10 per hour, and that's including tips, maybe it's $11 per hour, but maybe your general manager is making six figures, maybe 125, maybe there's got to be some sort of evening of the disparity of those salaries. Now, I realize the busboy's scope of the job he's going to do is going to be much more limited. He's going to have certain functions he's got to perform. He goes home. It's over with. You know, a GM is going to live that job 24 hours a day because you're responsible for the whole property. But when you've got a guy that's essentially an executive in an, in an office, he's not, you know, and he's making, maybe he's making uh, a half million dollars a year. Maybe he's making a million dollars a year. And then you're asking people to contribute and you're asking people to pay $2, pay your fucking staff more. It's very similar, Jeff, when I watch American Idol and this one I can talk about an American Idol will do once a year. If you want to make a donation to help so-and-so Please, the number's right here. Well, Ryan Seacrest, go fuck yourself. And Ryan Seacrest, you're worth somewhere around a billion dollars currently. I, much- I'm certainly in favor of go, going to tell Ryan Seacrest to fuck himself. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
But it, it, it always astounds me when billionaires and Ryan Seacrest at this stage is a billionaire when they ask people to donate and they ask people and look, I get it. But at the same time, Ryan, show us how much you donated. And I, I'm picking on Ryan Seacrest, but it could be anybody. This is a common practice where, yeah, you know, let, let me just, I'm sorry. I don't sure. mean to interrupt. You know what would be far more acceptable? And let's just use the scenario that you said, okay? Sure. Ryan Seacrest says, we're trying to raise money for such and such a charity, okay? Then what he should do is say, I want you to know that I have donated $100,000 to the American Humane Society. I'm calling on America to match my donation. Something like that, I would say, okay, he put his money where his mouth is. I'm going to send him a few bucks. Because he donated, but don't ask us if you're not going to do it. And I think that's the point you're making, Barry, and it's certainly a valid one. That's the well, it's the point I'm making. And, and so I am going to, because it involves religion, we never discuss religion. But when you have people in the clergy, pastors, preachers, et cetera, that have six private planes, they've got multi million dollar mansions. They're driving Bentley, Rolls Royces, et cetera. They're worth millions, if not billions. Maybe their of church dollars. is where the Houston Rockets used to play basketball. Exactly. Guys. That's exactly who I'm talking about. And then you're asking people in the congregation that might be making minimum wage to donate part of their salary to the church. So this fucking guy can have multiple planes, mansions, cars, et cetera, and millions of dollars, there is something inherently wrong with this. There is something inherently wrong with millionaires and billionaires asking the general public for donations or money when they've got all the fucking money. I'm fired up about it, Jeff. So let, let me just say, the example that I gave Barry uh, about this pizza place, okay, I have said it before, and I'm just going to reiterate it in case someone's really thinking I'm being an a-hole here. If they had a, a, a server that they were paying that came yes. to wait on our table, okay, brought us our food, brought us our beverages, came back once or twice, hey, everything's going, the food okay, okay can I refill your, uh, your drink? I'm happy to give that person an addendum to their salary and, and give them a tip. No problem. But some guy working behind the counter that, quite frankly— is probably one of the managers or the assistant manager, at least, that I'm now giving a tip to him besides what he's making as an assistant manager, not just a line employee, okay? And, you know, the other thing it, it reminded me of, uh, there was an episode, and and I know that you, you don't watch a lot of his programs, but uh, Gordon Ramsay used to do a show where he would go out and, you know, people were having a restaurant uh, that was uh, failing, okay? Sure. They would have him come and say, you know, tell us why the restaurant is failing. And, you know, whether it was, oh, you're doing a poor job cooking or you're not managing your budget as a owner, whatever. But there was a guy and his wife, and I want to say it was out in Arizona, maybe Phoenix. And they had a place. It was a restaurant, but they were more known as a bakery. Okay. And his wife did apparently some very nice work, you know, baking different pastries and, and stuff like that and treats. But what was the thing that absolutely made Gordon Ramsay crazy was he found out that when people would tip their one of their servers, they would not let their servers keep the money for tips. Wow. And Gordon Ramsay, if you ever seen Gordon Ramsay lose his shit, he lost his shit and goes, what, what, what do you mean you don't let them keep their tips? And 
you know, he he said that is completely outrageous. Though those people have earned their tip money. If people see fit to give them tips, either you need to compensate them, as you've said, and say, you know, maybe put a sign up. Oh, please. We uh, do not encourage tipping because we pay uh, a certain salary to our employees. But, of course, if somebody still wants to give them above and beyond what they're earning, that's fine. But you should let the, you know, so what happened in this situation was Gordon Ramsay actually went to a couple of the tables and said, do you know that the owner here does not let his servers keep the tip money that you as a customer may be offering to this person? And to a person, they said, that is completely outrageous. And the amazing thing was, the blowback from the two owners were, well, yeah, but, you know, we think that's the way. It's like they were so just dense and and couldn't see the forest for the trees. They thought this was the right way to go. And, you know, and, and people started calling them out on it. And it was absolutely hilarious. And, uh, you know, Barry, we could probably go on uh, and on about this in equity. So, uh, you know, if you've seen this out there, whether it's going to a place like Panera whether it's going to get a slice of pizza or something like that, let us know. Put something in the group about that. I'm I'm interested to see if this is something that is uh, really going on a lot more than we realize out there uh, and can become a talking point. Barry, let's get to our match of the week. We are going to August 28th, 1978. Madison Square Garden in New York City. Uh, a year after Summer of Sam, Barry. Yes. It's time for Bob Backlund to take on the Russian bear Ivan Koloff. Barry, tell the folks what you thought of this match. If I'm correct, this would be the first territory that Ivan Koloff worked when he left uh, Florida. So he had been a mainstay in the state of Florida for a while, had a great run. He was the Southern heavyweight champion. He was Florida tag team champions at least twice, first with Pat Patterson and then with Mr. Saito. And let that sink in for a minute. Two of the, I mean, the, you're talking three of the all-time greats, and Mr. Saito, criminally underrated and underappreciated. He, the guy was just incredible. And then Koloff made his way back to the Federation, where he had been the world's heavyweight champion some seven years prior. I think it was 1971, if I'm correct. Uh, Koloff, as you had stated, too, wasn't Uncle Ivan. He was the Russian Baron. Boy, he looks great. So... With that, I'm going to give you my thoughts on this match. And I actually, I watched it about an hour and a half ago, a couple hours ago. I always wait so I could be fresh with it. And I did have a lot of thoughts and observations on it. It is not a match that is great, that translates well to today's wrestling climate. In the sense that I don't think it's aged extremely well. It's a basic match in a lot of ways. It's actually a long match. It goes over 30 minutes. And I watched it. There are some rest holds. I loved the ending. I thought that's where the match came alive. Spoiler, I'm going to break kayfabe and talk about the finish. So the match is stopped on a blood technicality. Bob is bleeding too much. And I love the brawl that Koloff and Backlund have after the match is over. But Koloff doesn't win the title because when you stop, you know, according to the bylaws of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation back in the day. Available if, for you to peruse at their home office, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But the match, if it stopped on blood, well, you can't win that way. You can win only on a pinfall or submission. That's absolutely ridiculous. I just, I know professional wrestling at its core is kind of ridiculous and I get it. But at the same time, that just strikes me as really, with that being said, while I thought this was, if look, if I'm rating this on a scale of one to five, this is probably a three, 
maybe a three and a half. I do say if I had watched this match in 1978, this probably would have been a four, maybe a 4.5. And I think if you had been in the garden when this match took place, you might have been saying that might have been one of the best matches I've ever seen live. Because I think that's where that's the true test of that match. I think watching this match now some 44 years later, it doesn't really have this great hook to it with the exception of the ending. Just my opinion with it. I think Ivan looks fantastic here. And for all the shit that Bob gets, and I got to tell you, I hate reading all the, you know what? I'm going to call him out too. Billy superstar, Billy Graham last week. Uh, Did you happen to see this Jeff before? I I did not. So I believe it was either in Twitter or his Facebook page. He called out Backlund, calls him the most boring wrestler of all time. And superstar Billy Graham has been putting the verbal boots to Bob Backlund for years. I love it because first off, Backlund could, in a, I would imagine, I mean, especially at this stage, that's not a fair comparison. In his heyday, Bob Backlund could have beat the shit at a superstar, Billy Graham. Did Billy Graham have more charisma? Absolutely. Was he much more electric? He was. Professional wrestling is a work sport, so it doesn't really truly matter. But after losing the title some 44 years later, superstar Billy Graham still isn't over it. He takes shots at Backlund for no other reason than uh, he's still bitter and he's still upset that he had to lose the title a title that he was given apparently going into it, knowing that it was going to be temporary. Billy Graham is also a guy that has changed his story numerous times. And I guarantee you if Bob Backlund reached out to Billy Graham and said, Hey, I want to do a tour in the United States of you and I discussing the title change superstar Billy Graham, because there's a pay, he's a whore. And let me clearly state he is a whore that if superstar Billy Graham was going to receive a payday for it, he 100% would be praising Bob Backlund to the sky. He has done it with Vince McMahon Jr. numerous times. He has done it with the WWE numerous times. He's done it with Pat Patterson numerous times. Only if there's a payday involved will he change. Billy Graham is the, and I got to say, and I'll be very honest, Billy Graham reached out to me once, called me on my phone, and was as nice as could be. And I actually really enjoyed the conversation with him. So I I do want to put that out there. And again, I I do think this was a guy who was a less than mediocre professional wrestler who was really successful. So he understood how to market himself and what was going to get over. And he was, look, Billy Graham's a legend. I'll never discount that quality of his matches. Not great. That that I'm not saying anything that's uh, revolutionary with any of this, but At the same token, Billy Graham said something to me as we were talking, and he said two things, which I'll share. One was, do you think we can get enough marks to come where I can make a good payday? And I know that there are others that refer to people who put their money forth as marks. At the same time, I do find it highly disrespectful. And guess what, Jeff? I'll raise my hand. I'm a mark. I'm not a stupid mark, (laughs) but I am a mark. Without a doubt. And I'm, I'm fine and I'm proud of it. I have no issue with it. The second thing he said to me, I explained our concept of doing the CWF Legends Fan Fest. And I said to Billy, I said, yeah, we, we should be able to get enough fans there. And he said, you might be the only guy in professional wrestling who likes professional wrestling and isn't just in it for the money. 
And I said, I don't know about that. But I did say, but Billy, you're in it for the money. He said, I am in it for the money. So there was no pretense with that whatsoever. Billy told me what his demands were, which were a very solid appearance fee, as well as two first class plane tickets for he and his wife from the Phoenix, Arizona region into Tampa and then hotel accommodations. And Billy needed first class. And I believe this because his body is so beaten down, he couldn't go into coach. So I get I, that also makes sense to me. I told him and I said in no uncertain terms that, Billy, I don't know if I can afford that. I would have to check with my partner and see how we could make this work. But again, it's Billy Graham. That's a big fucking name right there. Well, a week later, Billy is posting that he's going to make his last ever FanFest appearance for CWF Legends FanFest. When did I find out about this? When somebody contacted and said, Billy Graham's advertising himself at your next event. So I then had to reach out to Billy and set the record straight and said, I, I told you, I, I, I forget, I phrased it nicely, where I basically said I had to discuss this with my partner because we're talking a lot of money here. I wasn't aware that you were going to go ahead and announce it. He said, don't worry, the marks won't mind. And at that point, I told my partner and I looked at Billy's reputation of not making shots. I believe a lot of it is health related, so I don't discount that. But he's also as carny as you can get. And I, I told my partner, I said, I don't want to do business with him. I just it rubs me the wrong way and I don't want to be out money and I have a really bad feeling about it. And I got back to Billy and I, again, as nice as could be, Jeff basically said, I don't think we're prepared at this time, possibly in the future, et cetera. Billy then blocked me from all social media, just like that. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. So with that, and this is a long ramp, but he's still taking shots at Backlund for no reason other than Backlund was made champion in an office. This took place in Vince McMahon senior's office. This didn't, doesn't take place in the ring. This is a, a high level meeting to determine the future of the company. But he by the way, uh, yes. Billy, I'm sorry, Billy knew going in. Yes. Because Vince Sr. had a policy of, okay, you're going to come in. This is the date I'm going to make you the world champion. And this is the date you're going to lose the title. So he knew that. Now, did he well, get Jeff, over I got one more thing to say okay, about it. And this is a big one. And I'm going to say, and clearly let me go on the record and say, superstar Billy Graham, you really are pathetic. Go fuck yourself. So he continues to take shots at Bob Backlund constantly. Some of them are, look, there were years ago he wished AIDS on Chris Jericho. He literally, this was a big deal, Jeff. He goes, I hope you get AIDS and die and said this in social media. Chris Jericho did nothing to deserve that first off. But Bob Backlund, you have spent time with Bob Backlund. I have spent time with Bob Backlund. Bob Backlund and I, I mentioned this, we had a 20 to 30 minute conversation about exercise and I'm not an exercise guy. First off, Bob, I believe, and I say this with the utmost respect and it's an observation. I believe Bob Backlund is on the spectrum. And I think anybody that has spent time around him will tell you he is it, a good chance. It's Asperger's. He is socially awkward. He doesn't know how to relate to people. There are a million stories about it. He is a wonderful human being. There is, other than being on the spectrum, Bob Backlund is a perfect individual. He is a wonderful, wonderful human being. I believe superstar Billy Graham knows that. 
And for the fact that he's taking these shots at Bob and knowing this information, honestly, you're a gigantic piece of shit. I'm sorry, Jeff. No, uh, everything you said about Bob Backlund is certainly, uh, you know, a valid point uh, as someone whose son uh, has Asperger's. I can definitely see that. I've sat down, I had dinner with Bob Backlund many years ago, but he is an odd guy. I think that's the nicest way to put it. Not, not like, and as you said, not, not like, wow, what a, what a really horrible human being. Who's kind of odd. We know those kind of people. Yes. Bob is a odd human being. Who's very nice. Bob almost, I want to say Bob is almost a guy that was too nice for the wrestling business, yep. you know, uh, because there are a lot of guys that are real sketchy. Let's be honest. Uh, there are guys that, uh, you know, are not the nicest human beings. Perhaps you were just talking about one of them. Bob is not one of those guys. Okay. Anyway, yeah, let's get back to the, the match. So you said, uh, <laughs> did I go off on a tangent? No, no, that's okay. So, so you, <laughs> you would say three and a half stars, maybe four. Yeah. Better. Better with in the, its day. With the benefit of, of 40-something years of hindsight. Correct. Better in its day. If you had showed me this match 30 years ago, it would have played. I don't think it's aged tremendously well. And I think if you were in the garden that night watching this match, this is one of the better matches you might have ever seen in the garden. So that's what I would say with. So I will, in fact, disagree with you. Oh. Uh, in the sense that I really like this match. Not, not that I thought, oh, this was the best match of the decade or something like that. I think you have to look, as Barry mentioned, you have to look at this not through the eyes of 2022 and compare it to Okada versus Omega. You can't even look at this with the mindset of like Flair Steamboat in the late 80s, uh, you know, Austin versus Bret Hart in the late 90s. No, you have to look at this through the eyes of 1978. And 1978, as I sat there and started watching this match, I was like, this is the kind of match that, that I would have really enjoyed as a wrestling fan in 1978, I would have sat there and gone, wow, this is really. Now, if you set a, a person with two uh, TV sets side by side and one of them had Okada and Omega, I'm just going to use as an example, or and then the other one had Bob Acklin versus Ivan Koloff, I'm sure they would think there's a hell of a lot more action uh, in the match from today. But I think you have to also consider like the story that came out, all the different things that were kind of going on. Uh, at the time, and it really, I, I watched it, and it was kind of like, was almost, I want to say a, a palate cleanser. I don't know if we've ever used that expression before. I like this it. Was a, but, but this was like a palate cleanser. You watch this, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah this is what, what it was like back in the day, you know? And I don't even know this was the best match of 1978, but it was a damn good match to me. Let me just ask you, and I think you know the answer to this question, there was a period of time when I think it was Ivan might've been Billy Graham and Ernie Ladd yes. like walked out on the Federation because they were trying to start a union. Would this have been around this time? And if the answer is, I don't know, then just say, I don't know. I believe it was prior. I, and I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I believe it was prior to this. I think it had something to do when the IWA, the Eddie or ID Einhorn's IWA was in play before or after that, I think it was prior to this, but I've heard that story as well. I believe superstar Billy Graham wrote about that in his autobiography as well. Okay. That's fair. So before I get into uh, more details of the match, let me just give credit where it's due. 
I found this match when I was uh, looking online. Uh, Evan Ginsberg had wrote an article about uh, the best Bob Backlund uh, matches as the uh, the WWF champion. Evan Ginsberg, a name that's been around the sheets and wrestling fandom for years, Barry. What do you want me to say about Evan Ginsberg? No, I mean, do you know him? Because I know you. Oh, I know him well. Absolutely. Okay, no. So I was yeah. going to say, it's like one of those guys that were in the very early days of the sheets, uh, a guy that you would, he, you know, he wrote articles and, and magazines and stuff like that. So he wrote this article about the top 10 best Bob Backlund matches. And this was one of the matches that he mentioned. So okay, let's get on to the match. Barry, let's talk during the ring introductions, okay? Howard Finkel's hair. <laughs> like, holy, he had one of the all-time bad comb-overs going uh, as oh, he's yeah. introing the guys, uh, and it just, it looked like helmet head. You know, it was just, like, so bad. <laughs> um, you know, of course, the guys come in the ring. Uh, Albano is, uh, <laughs> he he apparently, I'm not going to say Lou was uh, perhaps under the influence of something, but whatever he was doing, it was so bad they turned off the microphone so that he couldn't talk. To the crowd, because he would literally, uh, the first thing he, he grabbed the mic and he kind of went, ah, ah, rah, rah, and just started making these guttural noises. He didn't actually say anything. And I think they were extremely concerned that he was going to say something inappropriate. So they shut off the mic so he couldn't keep screaming into the uh, the, the microphone. Next up, uh, Arnold Skolin, the golden boy. Now, let's talk a little bit about Arnold Skolin. Arnold Skolin was never a big deal as far as I, I can see uh, in the WWE, he was, it was a mid card guy. Okay. And of course he grew to fame as, as uh, Bruno's manager and then Bob Backlund's manager. But essentially I think what it was, let's be fair is it was a way for Vince senior to give one of the office guys a role on camera. Would that be fair? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I sit there and I started when I watched him. And I was like, hey, here's a guy that basically glommed off Vince Sr. for the better part of 20 years plus as a guy that would sit in the office and they would play cards. He would sit in the locker room. They would play cards. That's time for uh, Bruno's match. Okay. And he'd walk out to the ring and he'd wave to the crowd, the golden boy. And then he'd go and he'd head back to the dressing room. Like, what a life, Barry. You know, like you and I, why couldn't we get a job like that? I think he was an agent too. Like, I think he was a guy. Oh, no, who, no. Yeah, he absolutely yeah. was. But I'm saying, you know. It wasn't like he was doing some kind of, you know, work where it was like uh, uh, really putting the effort in there, you know. And right. it, obviously he was good friends with Vince Sr. And Vince Sr. took care of him. Vince Sr. was a guy that was known to take care. You know, the veterans would show up at the Madison Square Garden for a card. And Vince would say, hey, how you doing? He would give him a handshake. And there would be a, a couple of bills in there, if you know what I mean, uh, just to a very nice way of of taking care of the old timers, okay? Uh, yeah, there are bad things you could say about any promoter. That was kind of a nice gesture that Ben Sr. would do that he uh, didn't necessarily have to do. Now, Bob Backlund, as he comes to the ring, he's got the kind of strawberry blonde hair. He waves to the crowd. I sat there and I was watching it. Other than Jack Briscoe, and I'm sure there's somebody after they listen to this will give some real deep thought to it, but could there have been a more prototypical all-American babyface than Bob Backlund. Nope, he was it. I mean, I'm watching this guy. I'm going, this guy is like what you want. You know, th this is what I want my kids to be. Like just a, a good guy and he's USA. And, you know, it, he just came across so likable. And it led me to think, and now here's the discussion we could really go down a rabbit hole on. Legend has it, and we've discussed this in past episodes before, 
that Vince Sr. was looking uh, for a All-American type guy because he'd done the ethnic baby faces with Bruno, with Pedro Morales. So he's looking for an All-American type. He reaches out to different promoters, Sam Muchnick, Eddie Graham, guys that he trusts. Uh, who should I consider? Of course, there were uh, rumors that we've talked about. Uh, Steve Kern was considered, uh, you know, guys like that. So my question is, Bob Backlund, Princeton, Minnesota. What do you suppose would have happened if Vern Gagne had had a moment of enlightenment? The light suddenly clicked in Vern's head. Vern, for everything you can say about him, was a very good promoter. He knew how to promote that area and his product, okay? What if Vern Gagne had said, hold on, Vince, before you bring him in, I'm bringing Bob Backlund up to Minnesota to the AWA. He's a hometown guy. He's an all-American boy. I'm going to make him my AWA world champion, and I'm going to have him feud long-term with Nick Bockwinkle and Bobby Heenan, and I'm going to retire from the ring. Now, of course, I understand. You know, Vern had a lot of trouble stepping away from the ring, even in his 50s, okay? But just for the purpose of this example, do you think that would have worked? I think it could have worked. I, I, you know, I, I'm playing Booker. I like to do that. You do. I, it backland out of any of the big three promotions of the territory days, obviously the NWA, WWF and the AWA backland to me seems that he would have been the most natural fit in working the AWA, which essentially was a, at times vanilla white meat, baby face territory. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And even the heels were essentially, you know, Bachwinkle great. Right. But I just, that's where he would have, I think made the most sense. But if you're also saying to me, I I guess, you know why? Because you did say work a long-term program with Nick Bachwinkle. I just to me, Bachwinkle was such a great champion. Oh, of a course. Great, Absolutely. A great representation of a champion. I wouldn't trade Bachwinkle, you know, I, I, for anybody. I just think he's. No, and they could so have done great. the thing where they maybe traded the belt, sort of like Vern and, and Bachwinkle did. Right. Okay. Plus, right. you have, you know, Bobby Heenan needling Backlund and, and giving him the business. Now, oh, I will say, I do not think Bob Backlund would have been a good NWA champion. Okay, that's just my personal opinion. I don't I don't think what the NWA champion, uh, as you said, AWA, very white meat, uh, you know, kind of very vanilla promotion and the way they presented their product. And because of that, I think Bob would have been a really interesting example that we could have drawn, you know, as if they had made him the champion and the direction they could have taken with it. Again, I understand I'm talking about. Vern doing something that would be completely antithetical to what Vern did. You know, Vern didn't want to walk away. Uh, Vern didn't want to give up control. But if Vern is looking at it like, yeah, man, I I really can't give this title to my son for whatever reason. There's a guy you could bring in and he's a kid from Minnesota. He was an amateur wrestler in Minnesota. This is everything fans in Minnesota, in theory, would have taken to and would have gravitated to. Now, of course, we're also talking this was before the whole rise of Hulk Hogan and all that kind of stuff that would have uh, perhaps changed the landscape. But I think that would have made for a kind of an interesting scenario. Um, getting back to the match, Ivan Koloff as the Russian Bearberry, where does that rank with you in the all-time great gimmicks? <sighs> Top 
20 for sure. Ivan Koloff, and I should say Ivan Koloff as a professional wrestler should have everyone's ultimate respect because uh, also a, a man of character, a guy very ethical, a guy who brought it every night as well. And I'll never understand why he's not in the Hall of Fame for the WWE, which should tell you if you want to support a Hall of Fame. First off, is there any Hall of Fame, Jeff, that you would consider 100% legit and agree with the way that they induct people? So I'm, I'm not saying, you know, it, I'm not saying because I know we're going to disagree with the, like, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We definitely disagree with a lot of that. Baseball Hall of Fame's got a lot of controversy. But the WWE is strictly personal. Like whatever Ivan did to not the guy was the world's heavyweight champion. The guy had multiple runs there. He apparently I, took a shit in Vince McMahon's lunchbox one day or something like that, because literally there's no other reason for not acknowledging the guy. But even then you would say, okay, for legitimacy purposes, I may hate Ivan Koloff, but I mean, that that's, again, that's being beyond, that's a billionaire or a multimillionaire being horrifically petty, right? But at the same time, Ivan Koloff was a major star, had multiple main event runs, faced Bob Backlund and Bruno, two world's heavyweight champions, and was the world's heavyweight champion. How could he not be in your Hall of Fame? What the fuck did Ivan Koloff do to Vince McMahon Jr.? Has to be uh, as, something. As a matter of fact, Ivan Koloff, I'm sitting here trying to figure it out now. I think Ivan Koloff might have had five runs in the WWF because he had his first run late 60s when he had just become, I'm trying to remember here, and Lou, tell me if I'm wrong. He had his first run late 60s where he went after Bruno, did not win the title, was brought back, what was it, 70, 71-ish, where he did win the title. Okay, then he loses the title, comes back. He has, uh, I want to say, the uh, the rematches with Bruno, 75-ish when Bruno's the champion. Then he leaves, comes back in 78. Uh, or or thereabout. No, maybe it was uh, yeah seventy eight where he has another title run with Backlund. Then he has another title run. Uh, when I say title run, uh, like going after the champion, I want to say in eighty three, maybe the early part of eighty three, he goes against Backlund. So I mean, good lord, what more do you need from the guy? You know, and all that he's a good person. It's not like he's well, yeah, he had the uh, the runs, but boy, what a piece of shit that guy was. And pretty much everybody liked Ivan Koloff. So again. He had to do something. There was some kind of rib that he played on a young Vince where he like shit in his lunchbox or did something to him. And, you know, maybe it was the, uh, you know, the the whole thing with the union thing. Uh, and Vince was so pissed off that those guys were. But then again, you know, he got brought back a few times after that. So it's not like, you know, his father at least recognized, hey, it's business. I'm bringing these guys back because I can make money off them. And if that's what it is, that's the big thing preventing uh, Junior from putting Ivan Koloff in the Hall of Fame, I just don't understand it. Anyway, uh, on to the match. Uh, oh, one last thing. <laughs> We're eventually going to get to this match, I promise. What's up with the deal? And I want to know if this was something, and maybe you do or don't, uh, don't know the answer to this. The managers would come out with their with their guys. They'd get introduced to the crowd. They, you know, If they're a heel, they'd yell at the crowd, kick the ropes. If it's Arnold Scullin, they wave to the crowd. And then they go back to the dressing room. Right. <laughs> really? Yes. Like, yeah. so 
I get why they have them on TV to push their latest challenger or whatever, or if there's an angle, but I don't think did these guys go on the road. No. So that was the, everybody will say, look, and it, we should also say the caveat to this is whenever you make a negative comment regarding somebody's childhood memories, you can expect a lot of pushback on it. Right? So of course, we're basing this off of having lived in a territory where a manager, Sir Oliver Humperdinck, Jimmy Hart, whoever it was, would work seven nights a week where they would do TV. These guys were working nonstop in the WWF. When people say the three wise men, Freddie Blassie, the Grand Wizard, Grand Wizard, new word. Uh, <laughs> I remember that guy. Remember that guy, Captain Lou Albano. They were working TV. And then they would work the big shows that were televised. And then occasionally a guy like uh, Lou Albano would be thrown into a match, but they didn't go on the road. And, and then, which is more of a head scratcher, they would come out to the ring for the introductions and then be sent back to the dressing room. Makes no sense to me. Missed opportunities. I would love to hear the logic if there was any logic involved as to why that happened. And the only one of the three, by the way, that ever took a bump was Albano. I, well, I can't Blassie couldn't. I mean, my God. No, Blassie of course. And that's my point. Years and, and old, I, yeah. I don't know if uh if the wizard, if Ernie Roth ever took bumps when he was working in Detroit. But uh, you know, when he came up to New York, I don't think he ever if if he did, I can't remember it. So the match, uh, it starts off five minutes in, they do a, you know, they're exchanging different holds, uh, doing a little of the old proverbial chain wrestling. Uh there's a sequence where uh, Backlund does a, a bridge to get out of a, uh, I think like a leg scissors. And uh, it's really interesting, uh, you know, doing some, uh, chain wrestling. Like you don't really see that much anymore. There's a, uh, a move at about 24 minutes where Backlund does a deadlift, uh, the short arm scissors on his arm does the deadlift brings Cole off over who's 250, uh, 275. He ha wasn't yet the slim down mid Atlantic Ivan Koloff, but he wasn't the, 1971 Ivan Koloff either. Uh, he was somewhere in the middle of that, but he picks him up with one arm, puts him on the, the turnbuckle and slaps him across the face. And it was a good slap too. It was very impressive. Uh, what I liked about the match was this was presented as a real struggle. You know, this wasn't, this wasn't a dance. A lot of times you watch like, even like a really good AEW match. Okay. Where they do all kind of big moves. It's really almost kind of a dance. And I know that sounds like I'm really being derogatory, but it's like the guys are so smooth in what they do that it doesn't it's not presented sometimes as a real struggle. This came off as a real struggle. There was a move where Ivan went to the top rope and missed a knee drop and the crowd just absolutely pops. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, for 1978. Now, you have to understand this was a fan base that really hadn't seen Jimmy Snuka yet. Mill Maskeris came in and he would do some of his drop kicks and stuff like that. But for the people in New York City, this was probably a really spectacular move. Uh, him him missing the top, you know, the top rope D drop. What do you think, Bear? Yeah, I would agree with that, Jeff. Yeah. Okay. So so uh, it ends up as Barry said. Uh, Backlund has opened up. Uh, the doctor. Oh, by the way, Barry, Doctor Harry Kleinman. Yes. Comes in. <laughs> yes. Yes. Comes in, and it, there is a great spot because he comes in to check Backlund. Koloff comes up and gives him a boot to the face, knocks Backlund down, and Dr. Harry Kleinman is just kind of standing there like, uh, excuse me, I'm here to examine the patient. 
can you just, uh, you know, give me a second here? Like, completely no-sells Koloff kicking Backlund to the face. Uh, and uh, at this point, your referee, John Stanley. John Stanley was not a guy that I've ever heard of. Uh, he was not someone, you know, like, they kind of had the, uh, the Dick Krolls, the Dick Worleys, even Gilberto Roman, who I saw sitting ringside. So did I, actually. That's so funny. Yeah. Now, add to myself, I'm going, that guy looks like Gilberto Roman right yeah. there. So it was, yeah. And you yeah. saw uh, uh, Bill Apter, George Napolitano, shooting uh, the, the pictures at ringside. So the match is called on cuts, which, you know, if you're a fan growing up, whether it's Florida, whether it's Mid-Atlantic, whether it's Memphis, and you see a match stopped, especially a world championship match, uh, stopped with cuts in 1978, just seemed kind of like surrealistic, you know, like cuts? What do you, you know, it's kind of the way people reacted when uh, the uh, Starcade 88 was stopped because Luger had cut himself. Uh, you know, I think you and I, Barry, have cut ourselves worse shaving than Luger did that night. Oh, no, no, no. We gotta, the commission says we got to stop this. And uh, so anyway, the match goes uh, 30 minutes, 29 seconds, stopped for facial cuts. Bob Backlund and Ivan Koloff, the Russian bear, I will post a link to this match. Uh, I think I liked it a little bit better than Barry. We both enjoyed it. I just think I liked it a little bit better than Barry. Uh, and so uh, we will give you folks a chance to check it out, see what you thought. So, Barry, before we go on, I just wanted to uh, add on this uh, Bob Backlund, Ivan Koloff match. I happen, of course, we mentioned it before, Bob Backlund's book, uh, Backlund, From All-American Boy to Professional Wrestling's World Champion, which good read, huh, Bear? Very good read. Yes, it's it's really, I think, one of the better wrestling books because yeah. he literally goes through the entire timeline, talks about every one of his opponents, uh, tells, you know, says whether he liked working with them, didn't like working with them, and uh, provides some pretty interesting context uh, historically. So about this match, he wrote, quote, on August 28, 1978, though, we started ramping up for the full for the fall season, excuse me, and I ended up in the ring at the Garden for the first time with the returning former WWWF champion Ivan Koloff. Koloff, of course, was the man who only a few years earlier had shocked the world by pinning the previously unbeatable Bruno San Martino, putting an end to his seven-year title reign and stripping him of the world title in this very same ring. This was the quintessential Vince McMahon senior match with the upstart young All-American boy champion facing the challenge of the chain-swinging, Russian flag-bearing former WWWF champion. Koloff, who was nicknamed the Russian Bear, had become white-hot with the fans for berating everything American and quote-unquote crippling a number of young American wrestlers. He was, once again, a seemingly insurmountable monster heel. He also had Captain Lou Albano as his manager, which, of course, only helped to increase the frenzied vitriol that the fans showered on them both. Behind the scenes, Ivan was actually a terrific guy and someone that I had liked very much. I had wrestled him once earlier in the year down in Florida for Eddie Graham, and we had worked a few nice high spots during that match that we repeated in New York. Ivan was a great worker and had impeccable sense of timing. At the time, he was around 285 pounds, and we did the short arm scissor that night at the garden, which saw me deadlift him onto my shoulder, out of the short arm scissor, walk him over to the corner, set him on the top rope, and slap him in the face. The fans were immediately into the match, as you might imagine, given the ready accessibility of the Cold War-inspired hatred between America and Russia at the time. Vince Sr. called for Ivan to ram me into the ring post and for me to draw color, and then, despite me battling on valiantly, to have the doctor at ringside stop the match due to my cuts and award the decision to Koloff. 
That, of course, would set us up perfectly for the rematch in September, just as the fall season was heating up. Barry, let's talk about some shows that you and I have been watching. We got two on Netflix, one on Prime. Barry, first of all, let's talk about crime scene, The Torso Killer. Wow. So this is a, first off, I like this documentary a lot. It's a three-part docu-series, and I cranked it out. Uh, I shouldn't I shouldn't use that. Yeah, you you, uh, you Javorsky'd it. You I know, I, I did. I watched these. I did this super quick, and I got to tell you. Again, you Javorsky'd it. Uh, okay. Uh, the jokes I, write themselves. They sometimes. do. They do. This is the uh, double entendre episode, Jeff, <laughs> at this point. I'm making I, a notation. Yes, everything I'm saying, it's just going to come across. So I got to say, I dove in deep. And there you go. Is that that? Okay. Yeah, we're going still. You had pasta. Go ahead. Had a little pasta. And I watched this one and I got to tell you, super disturbing, really well done. The first episode, this is the way it should be. That first episode really does hook you. And in my opinion, it delivers again. It's this isn't drug out to 10 episodes when it didn't need to be. Three hours, a little less than three hours, but really interesting. One of the most depraved killers and serial killers I've ever heard as far as, uh, you know, I would say this guy ranks right up there with some of the worst. And then the first story, which is the first two murders that occur in Times Square, really interesting. And the one lady, the one prostitute who is killed her daughter had been searching for her and of course stumbles upon this and then really goes down the rabbit hole. And I think she's responsible for a lot of this information, but I believe the first one was Iranian or at least of Iranian descent. Correct. Yes, that's and it true. Made me wonder in my head what had happened to cause her to go to a life of prostitution in of all places, Times Square. Like she wasn't a, and I, I'm not disparaging this woman in any form. God may God rest her soul. But at the same time, you know, there there's high end prostitution, alcohol, women who may go to and she seemed to be very attractive, might be going to high end hotels, et cetera. Your work in Times Square as a streetwalker, I would assume that's about that's got to be as close to the bottom of the list as humanly possible. So I would have loved to have known what her story was. That would be the only criticism I have. What what forced this woman into prostitution? I would assume her name was very Iranian, possibly Iraqi. I don't always know the difference. But at the same time, that culture doesn't really breed this. And for her to wind up at this, uh, there had to be a hell of a backstory there. I would highly recommend this, Jeff, and, and I did to you as well. I would highly recommend this to anybody. The way this story unfolds, and with some of the interviews that take place, I was riveted, absolutely riveted. The killer, and there's no surprise with this, the killer is uh, frightening in some of these interviews. He's absolutely a frightening individual. But some of the other interviews, especially with his coworker, the Hispanic bearded guy, completely forget what his name was. I love this guy. This guy had, he was made for television. Like this guy, older, heavy, I believe has a cane, but he's got a way of delivering lines and looking in the camera almost like 
as he's bending down, looking up with his eye. It just something about this works. Well made, well produced, and a riveting story. You like true crime stories? Highest recommendation for me on this one, Jeff. Yeah, the, uh, Barry recommended this to me. Uh, it's called Crime Scene: The Torso Killer. And the amazing thing about this—it's uh, three episodes. You know, easy peasy, fresh and breezy. And the only complaint I will have about it is, you know, Barry and I many many months ago, geez, maybe couple years ago now, Barry, uh, we talked about the show on HBO, The Deuce, which talked about all the stuff going on in the mid to late 70s uh, at Times Square, the uh, the prostitution scene, the pornography scene. And there's stuff that's in here that sort of, it's done more to give you an idea of what was going on uh, around that time frame in Times Square, the sleaziness of it, the the griminess, the grittiness of it. And this is what basically attracted this guy. His name is Richard Cottingham. Now, ask yourself, Richard Cottingham, oh, that's right up there with uh, John Wayne Gacy and Ted Bundy. And no, this guy fucking killed between 80 and 100 women and young girls. And yet the amazing thing about this story is no one has ever really heard about this guy. I mean, unless you were in New York in the late 70s when they caught the guy, you were like, fuck, they finally caught this guy. I had never heard of this guy and as the detail of his crimes, and let's be honest, Barry, the depravity of his crimes. I mean, yes. because this guy was not just, he wasn't something, and I'm not going to try to, you know, codify this, but he wasn't somebody to just kill people. He tortured them and raped them multiple times and then killed them. You know, so it wasn't like a quick thrill kill. This was a guy that was doing it just to be evil. And when he was finally caught, he was so matter of fact about it, you know, like, you know, I, I just had this compulsion, uh, you know, like basically the sun would go down and I would go on the hunt and that's just completely terrifying. And what he would do and now let's talk about, uh, the 1970s because of different laws and, you know, the things that maybe, uh, that there wasn't, I hate to say social media, but, you know, like everything was gotten uh, news-wise by either a newspaper or a TV station. You know, you, you weren't finding out uh, news other ways. So if you had a guy that was committing a crime in Times Square and then would go across the river into New Jersey, they weren't looking for someone in New Jersey, as as mystifying as that sounds. Or if he would commit a crime in New Jersey and then go across the river into New York you know, you'd have all these jurisdictional issues. You know, one of the things on the Patreon episode uh, that we talked about with the Murdoch family is the initial boat accident, how you had two different counties, plus you had like the fish and wildlife people, you know, all trying to decide, well, who has jurisdiction on this uh, this boating accident? And think about that sort of ramped up even more here where you had these murders that were taking place. And like, you know, say he would commit a murder in New York, dump a body in New Jersey. And, you know, then you had the different counties in New Jersey. Well, is it your arrest? You know, all these things that were happening that made it harder and harder to find the guy. And I mean, not to give uh, anything away, but what Barry talked about in the very first episode, the opening scene of the show is the police going into a hotel in Times Square and finding two victims who've had their heads decapitated and their hands removed so they couldn't be ID'd. There is a woman in the first case that they find that this person committed, 
the, this is the first case they found didn't mean that he didn't commit other crimes before this. This was like, Barry, what are we talking like 78, 79, something like that. I think that yeah, it was just before 1980. So yeah. yeah. And they still haven't identified one of the women because he removed their head, her head and her two hands. They still don't know who this woman was. I mean, that's 42 years later. That's effing crazy to think about it. So it's on uh, Netflix crime scene, the torso killer. I, I think I, I posted something about this and Benji was saying, oh, uh, that's, I said, hey, this is not something you want to watch with Antonio. This is not something for kids, needless to say. But if you're into, you know, finding true crime, if you're into something that's quite frankly a little bit dark, uh, let me recommend The Torso Killer on Netflix. Next on Prime, we have uh, the uh, the books. I think they're put out by Lee Child. The Reacher, the Jack Reacher books. Of course, Tom Cruise was uh, in the Jack Reacher, the two movies that uh, they released in that franchise. They've now turned it into a show on Prime. There's eight episodes. And the guy that they have playing the role of Reacher is much closer to the character because, I, as I told Barry and Lou before we started recording, my wife has read every one of the books. So, you know, when you read a series of books like that, in your mind, you have an idea, okay, this is what the guy looks like. Uh, you know, he's going to be like this because, the you know, the writer has written a character. And so you have all these personality characteristics of a character. And when my wife first watched the, the one that had uh, Tom Cruise in it, she was like, that's nothing like what the guy is supposed to be like. Tom Cruise is like five foot seven, five foot eight, and the character is like six foot five, and he just doesn't look anything like it. I can tell you that this show, if you're looking for action, this show has it. There's lots of bone snapping. There's lots of fights, lots of gunplay. If you're looking for an action show, Barry, Reacher on Prime. Yeah, so I... Uh... I wish I could add to this conversation, Jeff, but I'll sit over here silently and quietly. Do you have Prime? I do have Prime. I absolutely I would recommend do. it to you. All right. And I do have a night tonight that is free. I was going really? to watch this. Yeah. Yes, I was going to watch this movie called Nightmare Alley. So let me ask you a question, Jeff. Bradley put Cooper. You on, put you on the spot right now. Do I watch the show you just recommended, Reacher, or do I watch Narcos? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, both of them highly recommended. Reacher is a quicker arch or arc because that's eight episodes. Narcos is three whole seasons and it's 10 episodes a season. Okay. So depends on which one you want to get through quicker. Uh, you know, if you want to get through a quicker Reacher, if you want to invest some time, uh, if you don't have any pasta plans uh, in your uh, future, uh, then you can invest in Narcos. Uh, watch the original Narcos first, then watch Narcos Mexico because it helps you understand the storyline. Okay. Last show I want to recommend. I started watching this last night. Barry does not know that I'm going to mention this, but oh. I know this is right up Barry's alley. Barry, have you heard about the show on Netflix called All of Us Are Dead? Yes, I have heard of it. And Jeffrey... Boom. I did not know, so that makes this interesting. Guess who has watched three episodes? I am two episodes ahead. down. There so, you go. This show, it much like uh, a movie Barry and I uh, mentioned and referenced a while back called Battle Royale. Yes. Uh, this is a movie that's uh, set in Korea. It's set at a uh, private school, uh, like private high school. And there is an incident. 
Uh, and they kind of give you a background as to how this all started. And uh, yeah, much like a train to Busan, let's just say things start taking a dark turn, Bear. They do. So I should say I started watching this and I kind of liked the first episode. The second episode came and I was kind of found myself looking at the ceiling a little bit. The big takeaway, again, I'm only three episodes in. The big takeaway was I didn't love any of the characters, with the exception of maybe one of the students. I felt some of them were very unlikable and whiny. Oh, no, there's there, there's a whiny character. Yeah. There is a, there's a group of bullies. Bullies, uh, yes. Yeah, and they, they do really, you know, uh, let's just say pretty pretty evil things to uh, particularly one or two students. They do? Uh, oh, I hated and, them. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And you really, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, knowing what this uh, is going to be about, and you're like, yeah, I hope this one son of a bitch fucking right? gets his. <laughs> But so, uh, as I was right. watching this, though, Jeff, and I'm going to surprise you, what? I stopped after the third episode, and I have not gone back, though maybe I will, and I started watching the show that was right next to it, positioned right next to it on Netflix, called Archive 81. That show I enjoyed so much. I believe it's only eight episodes, either seven or eight episodes, it's eight episodes, and I ran through the entire series. It is the most unique idea somebody was obviously on something because I don't know who can ever come up with some of these storylines, but it was really original and I really liked it. There was a part that I didn't like as much, but I got, I would still recommend this archive 81. And I will say the acting is phenomenal. So I will ask you Barry, and this is no spoiler alert episode right. one. What did you think of the scene where the guy has the suitcase that he's carrying through like the tunnels or, or in the, in the, the bowels of the building. And he's got one of the, uh, the suitcases that you have like a handle and what happens with the suitcase. Do you remember what I'm talking about? I don't actually. He's got something in the suitcase that begins to move. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, that I, thought, I did like, yeah, yeah, that was excellent. And then the other thing was, the scene, and this was in episode two, where one of the students is in a, a hospital in the MRI unit. Yep. And do you yep. remember what I'm talking about? What happens? I do. Yes, oh, I do. Yeah. That was great. That, that was uh, right up there with uh, when the, the special edition of The Exorcist came out and you see uh, what they call the spider walk. Yes. Yeah, there's a scene yes. where a girl's in the MRI and something happens that is like you sit there and go, holy shit, that was pretty fucking wild. You know what's weird about that that show, though, is the way that a lot of the characters talk to each other, because as the one guy is on the ledge and the other guy is hanging out, like holding on to a rope outside of the high school, and there's like a zombie on his foot. The guy on the ledge is going, you're a moron. Like, what do you, you know, these guys are, you're in a battle for your life with a fucking zombie. And the other guy who's supposed to be the baby face is going, you're a moron. What are you doing, you moron? It was just, it's weird to me, like the way that they communicate with each other as well. Yeah. So, Barry, as we begin to uh, start wrapping things up for this particular episode, I do have a quick story that I thought I'd share with oh. the listeners. Yes. Right. Uh, I shared this with you, but, uh, you know, of course we are, we're givers. And so we like yeah. to share things. So, you know, uh, I have been, uh, besides uh, my work here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Lou, does that mean that I don't have to do it at the end of the show now? Text me and let me know. 
I have been, uh, you know, seeking other things to do, other avenues. And I was speaking to my uh, my friend Melissa that worked with me at the courthouse. Shout out to Mel Mel Cool J, as I called her. And she said, well, have you ever thought about doing uh, voice work? And uh, of course, yes, I have, uh, you know, this podcast I do with Barry. I have a great time doing it. And she said, no, you know, have you ever thought about doing audio transcription? You know, Barry, you've seen books on tapes, that kind of stuff when you go to a bookstore or a library. I sure have. And I said, you know, that is something I would absolutely love to do because uh, I have considered that before and I just need an avenue that I can uh, pursue that because I think it would be something that would be very fun. And uh, it's not like, uh, you know, I couldn't just do it at home. So that's something I'd be very interested. So she sends me a couple links uh, to these, uh, you know, different people who are saying, oh, here's here's what you do. Try this particular website, uh, do this. So I pull up the first website and uh, I can't even remember the name of it. And quite frankly, I don't want to give it away just in case I do get a job there. So one of the things that they do is you have to give an example of your voice. So I like literally read like a 25 second clip of uh, me reading this book I'm reading, uh, you know, oh, oh, and here's what happened next. And, you know, just uh, so they can hear my dulcet tones. So then you get to the next page and it's like one of the questions is, tell us what kind of uh, books you're interested in transcribing. Uh, There's 12 different choices and you're supposed to pick five. Okay. Just as an example, Hey, uh, fiction check, uh, nonfiction check. And I'm going to, you know, thriller horror. They have all these different kind of genres that you can pick. And then Barry, as I'm kind of going down, scrolling down, Barry, one of the selections, erotica. And I said, oh, my. (laughs) And I actually started laughing. And I was in our dining room on the computer when I saw this. And my wife's in the living room. She goes, well, what's so funny? And I told her about it. And I kind of, you know, kept scrolling down. And I checked off two more. And I had one more left. And I said, yeah, you know, let me go back up. And I went back up. And I looked at that uh, screen. I saw erotica. And I was like, fuck, yeah, I'll do erotica. Click. Checked on erotica. Get to the next page. And one of the questions is, Barry, imagine this. Uh, their listeners would love to know the answer to this question. Do you have a problem with vulgar language? <laughs> Barry, what do you think I checked on that? I'm going to uh, hold on. Think I'm about looking. it. Think uh, about it. I'm going to say you were okay with vulgar. I was okay with it, yes. They did not have a check for fuck yeah, I'll do that. But uh, <laughs> I did check that. So coming soon, perhaps if they reach out to me, Barry. And then he stroked her hair. And uh, well, I don't know, but you know, I'll keep you posted. But I thought that was pretty funny, Bear. That is funny too. So did you are they aware of your voice though? Like have did you have no, no, to I, sp- I gave an example? It's like a did, okay. 25 to 30 second clip. Literally, I took a paragraph out of the book I was reading and just uh, I read a paragraph just to give him an example. Yeah, they want to hear how you sound, uh, sure. and all that kind of stuff. And I have to post a picture. And so yeah, if that happens. That's going to be fairly amusing. And uh, I told a friend of mine about it, and her comment was, okay, if you get this job, please, please don't tell me what this website is because I don't <laughs> want to hear you reading this kind of stuff. And I said, you know, I got no problem saying the word cock and pussy and all that kind of stuff, Barry. Uh, occasionally, uh, it's okay to say that. It's time for the go-home, Barry. So, Barry, let's take a look what we got here. We got three, four TV recommendations. We got uh, discussion of the uh, the Patreon episode. We got uh, tips with no service. We got uh, a great match. Uh, well, I thought it was a great match. Madison Square Garden. 
We got the double entendre episode, Tales of Potential Erotica, read on audio cassette. I don't know, they make audio cassettes anymore, or a CD or streaming, I don't know, whatever. Huh, Barry, I am physically exhausted and morally bankrupt, my friend. Yeah, I'm already taking a nap, Jeff. I'm like lying back now, legs are in the air. It's exactly, I got a Legs pillow. are in the air, wait a minute. Well, you know, trying to have a baby, so it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will only say that Breaking Gay Fable with Bowdrin Berry is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. That's twice in this episode, Brian Laugh. So you should be happy with that. And on behalf of our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman, the birthday boy out by the bay, and Mr. Putting His Legs Up, getting ready to have a baby, Barry Rose, I am your host, Jeff Bowdrin. They call me the booker. And until next week, take it home, Lou.